We're going to read God's Word together, first of all, from the book of Isaiah that we've been going through these last weeks, and reading from Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleaned it of stones. He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain in it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines He delighted in. And He looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Then we read, read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12 and verse 16. Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have got no place to store all my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to His disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat or about your body and what you will wear. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to meditate on Your Word this morning… We pray for your blessing. As we meditate on it, we pray that it will speak to our hearts, that we might be open to your heart. Amen. Harvest Thanksgiving. And it's one of those services where we come and we look at pictures like that, don't we? And we sing songs and we can almost predict what some will be. And yes, we will be finishing with you plow the fields and scatter. Just because we have to be somewhat predictable sometimes. Harvest Thanksgiving is really quite interesting because it really was a time when in, in rural communities, 
of, of deep thanksgiving because in one sense, they had just finished a massive task. They'd gone out and brought in all the tatties or, 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 or cultivated all the vines and, and, and brought the fruit in. Everything was done. The hardest bit of work was over. And you know yourself when you finished a big task, there's just a sense of, wow, it's like the last day of school if you're a teacher. There's that sort of uh, uh, amazing feeling of, of the work is, is hopefully done and, and, and relief, or you've just sat an exam and it's, it's finished. But there's also something else for the harvest, which was as people gathered, they were not just thanking God that they had all this food and the, the, the work was over. There was a great sense of relief. A great sense of relief, not just because of work, but because until that point, they had been praying, genuinely praying. Because if the harvest failed, then the economy collapsed. In fact, if the harvest failed, there might even be starvation. And for most of human history, that is exactly why harvest festivals, going right back into the Old Testament, were so important, because people were genuinely coming with great sense of relief and joy and saying, thank you, Lord, that we have been given our daily bread, that we have got enough to see us through the cold winter that is about to come. Now, of course, the problem for that in modern urban churches is that we are so far removed now, one or two of you will have rural backgrounds, but most of us have very little experience of that. In fact, I, I always laugh every year when we sing, we plow the fields and scatter. Uh, you should sing things that are true. How many folk here have plowed a field? There'll be some. How many folk here have scattered um, grain or corn in order that it might grow and be their harvest? In fact, we should maybe update we plow the fields and scatter with modern language. It would go something like this. We often go to Tesco to do our weekly shop. Well, we just change the words because that would be more realistic for where we are. And the danger with Harvest Thanksgiving for churches today is it's become sentimentalized. We come because we like the nice colors and we come because we like singing these old-fashioned hymns and we all feel nice about it. But it actually has very little to say to us about our daily life. And so, what we're left with is that Harvest Thanksgiving becomes that time where we always have a retiring collection. We used to have, we brought the food and we gave it to people, but actually that's not so helpful. So now we gather money because it's the best way to respond. But it really is, in many ways, all that's left of the use of the harvest. In the Old Testament, it was far more than that. In fact, the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy 26 that God's people were told to celebrate the harvest. And as they did that, they were to bring the first fruits, the very best of the harvest, the first things that they had got, and they were to offer them to God in the temple. And as they did that, they were to remember that everything they had was a gift from God. It wasn't just that God had, had given them this wonderful harvest, but they were to recall at that time that God had given them the very land. Their father, Abraham, had wandered in that land and owned nothing. And then their people had been slaves in Egypt, and they had been brought out of the land into that place of milk and honey. And what they had to do was, every third year at the harvest, they were to bring not just a little offering, but they were to bring 10% of the harvest. 
And they were to bring that 10% and they were to give it away as a gift to the poor, to the orphans, to the widows, to the refugees, to the asylum seekers. And they were to do that to remind themselves that as they came with thanksgiving, they said, this isn't ours by right or by hard work, but all that we have is a gift from God. And our generous God means that we need to be His generous children, and we need to share all that we have with others. And that's the background to how the Old Testament saw the harvest. Then we turn to Isaiah. Sorry, I missed a slide. A recap of what harvest was in the Old Testament, reminding you it's a gift from a generous God, reminding you to be generous and share, and to reminding you that God would keep blessing you year on year as you depended on Him. It's the same reason we pray, give us today our daily bread. We're saying, thank you for what you've given us, and we continue to be dependent on you for everything. Isaiah 5 is possibly set at a harvest thanksgiving. Israel didn't grow an awful lot of grain just because it was hilly near Jerusalem particularly, and so they grew a lot of grapes. They still do. And it was set at the time of the grape harvest. And in that celebration, Isaiah stands up and says, let me sing a song. Now, possibly people did that. They came with a a harvest song to sing, and he says, let me sing a song. And he starts to sing a song about a friend of his, who he calls his love. He says, this friend of mine had a vineyard. And people are expecting a song, like someone might say, old MacDonald had a farm. He says, this old friend of mine had a vineyard, and he starts to sing this song. And and the song, verses 1 to 7 that we read, begins as a beautiful song. He says, my friend of the vineyard, he planted it with the best ground. He put it on a fertile hillside with great sunlight. He tendered and prepared it. He labored. He removed all the stones. He planted the best vines, and he built a watchtower. The watchtower was so he could protect it, but also so he could sit and keep looking over it, expecting the best grapes. There's pictures of folk planting a vineyard and building a watchtower. And it ends the first part by saying, my friend was sitting there expecting the crop. And then the sucker punch. He looked for good grapes, but he got only bad fruit. In fact, the Hebrew says literally, he got stink fruit. Smelly, rotten, awful fruit unsellable, unappetizing trash. And this is the shocking thing about this chapter 5. It started with this beautiful song, and the song morphed into a horror story. Upsetting. And it's more upsetting because Israel itself was often described as God's vineyard, the people that He'd planted, and, and that metaphor was very strong with the people. And so, in the middle of the harvest celebration, Isaiah is coming and saying, God is completely disappointed with you. Oh, we want to sing, we plow the fields and scatter. God really is disappointed and angry with you. Can we not sing, come ye joyful people, come? You know, you can see the the tension in, in, in what Isaiah is doing here. He is saying, you giving God nothing. God has no pleasure in anything that you are doing. And it gets worse 
as we move through that to verses 6 and 7. Because God says, I, I've done everything for you. And I look, for, I look for a return. I look for generous people from my generosity. And I only got stink fruit. And God goes on to say in the next verses, I am going to make it a wasteland. There'll be no more protection. There'll be no more walls. There'll be no more pruning. There'll be no more rain. I will destroy you. I will trample you until you are dry. I'd really like to sing, we plow the fields and scatter. And then Isaiah really ladles in in, in verse 7 because he says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Just in case they'd missed the point, he says, this is you I'm talking about. This is you. God has had no love from you, no respect from you, no return from you. God's going to fall on you like a ton of bricks. And it's as if he was sitting there saying, and I'm talking about Scotland. I'm talking about Motherwell. I'm talking about the folk in this church. This is where God is. You can sort of imagine that's a bit of a downer at Harvest Thanksgiving. They're squirming. Why does God feel like this? Well, Isaiah spells it out at the end, where he says, I looked for justice, but saw only bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And the word in Hebrew for justice and the word for bloodshed, are, they sound alike. It's a sort of pun. It's as if God was saying, if we were to put it in English, one commentator put it this way, I was looking for right, and I saw only riot. I was looking for decency, and I saw only despair. So it's a rather horrible Thanksgiving picture. I, would you rather I just showed some pictures of tractors and nice sunshine? Yeah, fruit and veg and, and color. But actually, you know, for us, Harvest has always confronted us with something, in recent years particularly, with the thought that as we think about the generosity of God, we are also met with the injustice that surrounds us. I, I did a children's address a few years ago, which I haven't repeated, and you'll see why when I, when I tell you about it. Because ministers are always scratching their heads for what can I do new to present something, and what do I do new at harvest? And so I got this, this, this idea of, I got someone to bake a cake, a harvest cake, and I said to the kids, not little feta cheese, I said, if you'd like a bit of cake, come out. And they all came out and stood in the line. And then I took the cake and a knife, and the first one came, and I cut them about a third of the cake and handed it to them. And then the second one came, and I gave them a huge big slab of it. And then the next one came, and they got a slightly smaller slab of it until we ran out of cake. And I thought this was really clever because it made this great point that the earth's resources are not shared fairly. But what the minister had missed was the kids at the back were crying. That was awful. Until one of the kids said, that's not fair, I'll give them some of mine. And I thought, well, you've made the point. But you get that sense that as we come to harvest, and I, I did have a clip that we could have shown this morning which was talking about global warming and its impacts on some of the poorest communities. We could have looked at food poverty and food banks. Many of you could tell stories um, because you're engaged in work in different places where you see the effects of unfairness and injustice that's built into our systems. 
you know, the minister, the preacher, the Jeremiah, the Isaiah that begins to point that out might well be a terrible person to come to a harvest thanksgiving, but they certainly say something that people don't forget. And that's what Isaiah is doing in this passage. He's giving people a reality check. You can sit in the temple and enjoy your harvest thanksgiving and have all your grapes, or you can open your eyes to how God sees all of this and what's in his heart. And if you've got time, I would invite you to, at home, have a look at the rest of chapter 5. It's not very long. I'm just going to give you a little headline of it, because it, it talks about things that when you, when you begin to look at them, you say, that's our lives today. Verse 8 says, Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till there's no space left and you live alone in your land. Now, I can't think of a better metaphor for what's wrong with modern society than that. What's going on here? People adding house to house. They're getting more and more space, bigger and bigger houses, more and more wealth, more and more bedrooms, more and more whatever, until there's no space left. And some folk have no home. Some people have three. But what are you left with? Even the person that has got everything is living alone because community and love and solidarity have been destroyed by selfishness. Now, Isaiah is not a communist. He's not against wealth. But what he's pointing out is where you have deep unfairness, where you have folk getting for themselves, it all goes wrong. It's very interesting that this contrasts with Deuteronomy. The, the, the ancient Israelites had a a very different view. They, they, they saw all of the land, and remember at that time wealth was land because it was an agrarian society. All of the land was God's and given to the people. And God had given each portion of the land to a different tribe. And within that tribe, each portion was given to a different family. And you could, you could develop your land, you could do what, what you could with your land, you, you, you had your, your system of buying and selling and all the rest of it, but if you lost your land because your crops failed and you had to sell up your land and you had to go work for someone else, it was only ever to be temporary. Because every 50 years there was a reset and all the land was given back to the families it had come from. And the reason for that was you didn't have generational injustice where the poor got poorer and the rich got more and more because there was a reset at the beginning of it. And that is built into Scripture right in its way, that we shouldn't have economies where speculation means that the rich get more and more and more. Now, before we think this is about Elon Musk and his millions or, or, or what Lord something has, has, has acquired, we only have to look at what we have in this country as the people who peeled the bananas don't have a fair wage to realize that some of this is about us. When you buy your bananas, do you ask if they're fair trade? When you buy your coffee, do you buy the cheapest coffee or do you ask some questions about where it came from? And if you just think about what's best for you, then you are part of the problem, not the solution. This is right through the Old Testament. And God says there is a curse in all of this. The curse will be loneliness. In fact, He goes on from this verse to say that the land will be taken from you. Wealth without justice confers no tenure. 
Now, it's not just economic things he talks about in this chapter. We could go on. The second part of it talks about morality as well. He talks about the fact that there, this is a time where people call good things bad and bad things good, and, and, and they twist God's Word, and they call right wrong and wrong right. And we could, we could speak about the many ways our society is doing that today. But to ignore what God is doing is completely devastating. And Isaiah will say, judgment will fall. Now, there's a little bit of us sometimes when we read all of this in, in, in Isaiah or the prophets or the Psalms, and we think, oh gosh, judgment, punishment, God angry. Can we not have some New Testament? Because that's happy, isn't it? And that's why I read the passage from Jesus who talked about people building barns, storing up wealth, thinking about their future, not paying any heed to God. And we suddenly realized that what Jesus was saying was just as hard as the Old Testament, just as judgmental as the prophets. There isn't a way that you can get around this by saying, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament lets me do what I want. The God of the New Testament lets me enjoy life without asking too many questions about the poor. The God of the New Testament is only going to pat me on the back and tell me I'm going to get to heaven and I'm, I'm fine and that's the end of it. But actually, when you begin to read the Bible, you realize the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Oh, I've left you in a heavy place now, haven't I? But there's hope. And the first thing to realize is this. As you hear this song, and as you hear God's broken heart, you realize just how much God loved that vineyard. Just how much God desired that that vineyard would bring forth good fruit just how much God's heart was breaking as He saw all that was wrong in it. And you suddenly realize, despite all that we have done, despite all that we have got wrong, we are loved, totally loved. This is not a parent who says, I don't care about you anymore. I don't care what you're up to. This is a parent whose heart reaches out. And the other sense of this is that we take it from Jesus partly because we know the New Testament that Jesus gave His life for us. And despite His hard word, He gives us hope of forgiveness at the cross and new life. But the Old Testament points to the same thing too. And I hope as we, as we go through Isaiah that more and more we'll go to those wonderful passages where it's talking about the fact that everything may be broken, but God wants to come and make everything new. God wants to come and dry the tears and bring justice on the earth. God wants to come and He's going to send this suffering servant that is spoken of in Isaiah who will give His life that people's sins might be forgiven and the whole of creation healed. And so that hope and that forgiveness is there in old and in new too. So what does harvest leave us with? It should leave us with eyes open certainly, to asking questions about where the food comes from and who gets to share it and do the folk next door or in the community next door half sufficient. But that comes out of a place. It comes out of a place of gratitude, of thanksgiving, of genuinely saying to God, we are grateful for all we have. We are not going to take it for granted. Like those farmers that Luke 
to when the harvest comes and say we are so grateful, even though we have more security in our economy now, and we do despite everything that has, is difficult at the moment, we, 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 are, we are not likely to starve. Even though we have all of that, to come and say this is a gift of God, it is not a right. And as we look at what we have, we are able to say our God who gives us this is generous and gracious and just. That's what our Father is like. And it is surprising that a God who is generous and just and gracious wants us to reflect that in our generosity, in our sense of justice, in our graciousness in being willing to share forever. What is the fruit that God wants from His vineyard? To love mercy and do justice and walk humbly before our God. The fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. I've forgotten all the other ones. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So this harvest thanksgiving, rejoice in the harvest. As we eat these things together at the end of the service, that's part of the rejoicing. Enjoy them, but also enjoy them together because they are given to us in community to enjoy together and to pledge ourselves again that in His name as we share this good news, so we go out to share justice, so we go out to share wealth, so we go out to share from our blessing from Him, a blessing to all of the world around us.